Welcome to the Memorial Sermon Podcast. It's our hope that this message would encourage you in your walk with God and drive you closer to Jesus. For more information about our church, visit mbcmetairie.org. Now, here's this week's message. This morning we are going to be talking more about Advent at Memorial. And as I mentioned earlier, that, that we'll be lighting the Advent candles. And of course, the first Advent candle, like I, like I mentioned earlier, is the candle of hope. And so we're going to be looking at that particular message. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to the, the book of Luke. And we're going to be in Luke chapter 4. For today, and and so if you've got your Bible, or if you've got a tablet, or or um, something that you can look along with us, I really want to encourage you. We're going to be even looking at some particular words. We're going to be examining those, and so I just humbly ask this morning that you would grab your Bible so that you can be able to see some of these things. We'll be getting to our notes here in just a minute uh, to kind of um, kind of guide our time together. But before we really get in, you know, I, I was thinking as we're moving into Christmas and, you know, thinking about some of the traditions that we'll be doing, I wanted to ask you this morning, what is your favorite classic Christian comedy? And I just wanted to put a couple of here on the screen. Maybe your, your favorite Christmas uh, comedy is uh, Christmas Vacation. Some of y'all love this movie. This is uh, one that's okay. It's not my personal favorite, but I know a lot of people that love to watch this movie every single year and, and to, to do that. One of the ones that came out that when I was growing up, I actually remember seeing this next movie in the theater as a kid, and that was... Home Alone. And so many of y'all remember Home Alone, maybe watch it every year. The second one's not near as good as the first, but the, the first is man, a great movie of, of him getting caught up, being at home all by himself, family traveling, and then two robbers trying to, to rob his house. You know what's so funny about this movie? I don't know if you guys know this. Uh, we have our check-in kiosk with our kids. I, I don't know if y'all knew this, but uh, our check-in kiosk Every time it, we're trying to test it, actually has like Macaulay Culkin come up. It has like his name and uh, and it comes up and it ha- actually has the address that they live at uh, in Home Alone. And so it's so funny for us to uh, be able to do that every time we check in. And so we're checking in Macaulay Culkin. He's the first person every Sunday and every Wednesday that we that we do this together. So maybe that's one of of your favorite Christmas comedies. Another one that I know folks watch almost every year is A Christmas Story. This this one came out in 1983, and so, man, can you believe, we're coming up on 40 years that this movie uh, was made, and so uh, this is a, a fun comedy that I know uh, families will watch from, from time to time. But as I, as I thought about the different, uh, the different movies, there's one that's not mentioned very often, and it probably has something to do with, you know, the way that our country's going, the way that the things are going, but I love this particular movie. Maybe you haven't heard of it in a while, but it's called The Best Christmas Pageant Ever. Have you heard of this? You heard it? It's based on the book. It was written back in the 70s. You can see up here by uh, Barbara Robinson. And this is an incredible story. It was also made in 1983. And so it's based on her book. 
And this is a, a fun little uh, story, and, and I love the way that it relates, kind of kind of poking fun a little bit at, at some church culture things. The movie opens with the church, and, and, and it's got like a, a little Sunday school class filled with kids. They're ready to learn, and uh, so it's really almost like this Sunday. And they're talking about things. Hey, what were you thankful for during Thanksgiving? The Thanksgiving decorations are coming down. The Christmas decorations are, are going up. And so in uh, this first scene, you got this, the kids and they're saying the things that they're thankful for. And then you've got one child who stands up and he says, I am so thankful that the Herman kids aren't here. You know, and you kind of think about that, you know, I'm thankful that someone's not here. And so you begin to learn the story of the Herman kids. The Herman kids are six kids and they're notorious for their rowdy, misfit behavior. And you have Emma Jean, who's kind of the leader of the pack, a female. Uh, and then you've got Ralph and Claude and Leroy and Ollie and Gladys. And, and they're more or less, they're raising themselves. They're dirty. They got dirt on their face. And uh, one of the opening scenes is them blowing up someone's shed. I mean, just mixing some uh, chemicals together, that kind of thing. They're known for their smoking, their cussing, their drinking, and even their shoplifting. And what's so crazy about this is despite, you know, their, the, all the things that go on in their life, they keep being pushed through in uh, in school. Some of y'all may, may know, you know, behind this is because there's six kids, you can imagine. And so if you hold one of them back, that means that a particular teacher or grade might get caught with two of these kids in the same year. And so they just keep pushing them through. And, and so you find out over the course of the story that they decide to go to church because they hear that you can get free snacks at church. And so they begin to come to church and go to this Sunday school class that, that the little boy stood up and said, I'm so thankful they're not here. Well, now they are here. And so now they've come for the free snacks. And on that particular Sunday, they're, they're talking about something that's up and coming, and that is the church's Christmas pageant. And so... They look at one another and they decide that they want to be the main characters in the Christmas pageant. And so they bully the other kids. Don't you dare offer to be any of the characters in the Christmas pageant. We're going to be the ones in the Christmas pageant. So the teacher is asking, you know, who wants to be Mary? Who wants to be Joseph? And all the other kids are frightened. They don't want to get beat up or anything. And so all of the Herman children get a major part in the Christmas pageant. And so everyone is thinking to themselves, this is going to be a disaster. But they continue to come to the rehearsals and things like that. And, and, and so when the night of the Christmas pageant, you know, everyone's there, they're thinking, what's about to come out? What's about to go on? But what you find out is that their performances actually make the Christmas pageant, a little less traditional, but more realistic. These are children who have, who, they've never even heard the Christmas story before. This is the first time that they're understanding it. And they're thinking to themselves, they actually come out and say, so the innkeeper, 
wouldn't let Mary have her baby. They wouldn't, wouldn't even provide a room for her to have the baby. And so she's got to go have it out in a barn. I mean, the, the first realization of that taking place. They think of the wise men's gift. Three of them become wise men. And they think of the, the wise men's gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. They, they think, well, what kind, of, what kind of gift is that to give a child? What kind of gift is that to give a crummy baby, someone, or a crummy baby, a crummy gift for a special baby. And so for them, as they began to, to go through this, that, you know, they had been, someone graciously had given them a ham for Christmas. They didn't know if they had very much to eat. And so instead of bringing fake golden frankincense and myrrh on that special night of the pageant, they actually bring a ham to give to the baby Jesus because they figured that's one of the best gifts that they had been given. They wanted to return it. And then at the end, as you kind of see this, no one knows what's going to happen with Imogene, probably one of the hardest of them all. And she comes up and instead of taking baby Jesus, putting him down in the manger, she holds him close. And as she holds baby Jesus so close, she begins to understand the Savior. And as everyone's looking around, these rowdy kids who they never really wanted to come maybe to their church, the kids certainly didn't want that, she begins to cry because she recognizes the gift and the love and the hope and the peace of Jesus. And it kind of makes for what they call the best Christmas pageant ever. Because here, where they had mostly done the Christmas pageant out of tradition, now they finally could see on the face of little Imogene what it looked like in the child. And so there she is. You can't really see right here, but she's holding the baby Jesus so close, having that full understanding of the hope that Jesus brings. That's what I'm hoping to talk about today. Today we're not going to be in a traditional Christmas passage like Luke chapter 2. In fact, we're just going to be a couple chapters after that in Luke chapter 4. And I want us to begin to see the hope of Jesus as so many were looking forward to the Messiah. Their hearts were resonating for the Messiah. And here's what I want us to see. The same way that the Herman kids might not have been accepted in that fictional tale in uh, the best Christmas pageant ever told, but that I want us to see this morning that the hope of Jesus isn't just for a few people. The hope of Jesus is for all people, even the people that we may not like, even in our enemies. A lot of times when we think of Christmas, we think of gathering with the people that we love and the Christmas parties and the uh, time with family. But this morning, what I want us to talk about is that it is a hope, candle of hope, for all people. So join with me. I'm going to be in Luke chapter 4, and we're going to be in verse 16 as we read through this. It talks about Jesus being grown as a man. He's begun his ministry. And it says right here in verse 16, He came to Nazareth, 
where he had been brought up. And as usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. This is a common thing that we see that Jesus, once you know, Jesus went to church every Sunday. Every Saturday, rather, for him. He's Jewish, and so they went to the synagogue. And so this was his tradition. This is the way that he was brought up. And so he went every Sabbath day. And on this particular Sabbath day, he was asked to stand up. Would you read? Sometimes they would have visiting teachers come in, and, and after they would read, uh, maybe you would have a priest that would pray, or sometimes you would have a, a lay person come. And so it was, it was a normal time in the synagogue. And so Jesus is asked, at this point in time, if he would read. And so the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him and, and unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it was written. So here he is, he's unrolling the scroll and he's getting to read from Isaiah, the passage that my wife read this morning in Isaiah chapter 61. He's only going to read two verses. He's a good preacher. He's just going to take two verses and pick them apart. And so what he says here in verse 18, also Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1, it says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. We're going to talk about that in just a second. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to, to set free the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Just two little verses. And then he begins to roll that scroll up and verse 20 it says then he rolled up the scroll gave it back to the attendant and he sat down and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him they were they were ready to hear what he had to say back in this day and age you didn't sit down because you were done the the typical teaching of a of a rabbi was on that sabbath day as he would sit down and teach and so now he's he's sat down all the eyes are on him everyone's looking at him with anticipation what is he going to say they all admire him this is a you know this is a homegrown boy right here in nazareth and so right here he sits down all the eyes are fixed on him. And then in verse 21, it says, He began by saying to them, are you ready for this? Today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. Now, this is important. He's looking at them and saying, look, everything that you have been anticipating for the past 800 years is now coming in to fulfillment. So he meets their anticipation. He meets their expectation. But then he also recognizes that they don't have a full understanding of what the Messiah coming into the world means. He, they certainly don't understand what it means about him. And he addresses that. Look at verse 23. Then he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Doctor, heal yourself. What we've heard that took place in Capernaum, do here in your hometown also. And he also said, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. Now, that might seem odd. And then he begins to expound on why he won't be accepted. 
And he goes in and he begins to talk about some instances that took place in the Old Testament that I want to speak with you about this morning. Look with me in verse 25. He's going to give this first instance. He says, but I say to you, there were certainly many widows in Israel in Elijah's days. When the sky was shut up for three and six months, and while a great famine came over the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them except a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. Now here's what's taking place. He's looking back at, at when you think of, of Elijah and you think of the incredible things that Elijah did back in the Old Testament. Maybe that you remember that on Mount Carmel he called down fire and you know you had all the prophets of Baal and you know and how, how they were disposed because of, because of this great time. But then after that there was incredible turmoil. And so what happens is God brings about a famine. The people of God had strayed so far. The Jewish people, the Hebrew people, the people of Israel had strayed so far. They had begun to lose their faith in God and they had lost their commitment to God. And so what happens is God brings about this, this incredible famine. And let me tell you, there's nothing like a little pain in your life that God will use to turn your attention from all the little things in this world that we just love to run after. Maybe, the, maybe we don't worship idols out of stone and wood and things like that. Oh, but we worship idols like money and relationships and other things. And so here, he's turning their eyes back to him and he uses a famine to, to get their attention. But Elijah isn't sent to any of the people that Jesus would have been talking to in the synagogue. He's not sent to the Jewish people. He's not sent to the Israelites. Instead, God says, Elijah, I want you to get up there's a widow that I want you to meet with and so he goes into this area of Zarephath and this would have been what the Jewish people would have considered their enemies the outsiders and so he goes to Zarephath and certainly he meets this widow and and as he meets her you know she's outside there's no water there's no food and he notices that she's just picking up sticks and so as she's picking up these different sticks he looks at her and he says, would you mind helping me out with a piece of bread? And I'll give you the Dan Pritchett version of the passage. She looks at him and says, a piece of bread? I barely have a handful of flour. And he says, I tell you what, if you'll take that handful of flour and you'll make me a piece of bread, I guarantee you that you will never run out of flour and you will never run out of oil. And certainly, even in their midst, that she, in her faith, reached out to this man of God and she made him uh, some bread out of this handful of flour and the little oil and she never ran out of flour or oil. Now, even in the meantime, she considered that that was going to be her last meal and that she and her son were going to die. And, and what you find out about this story is that even after God provides for her, she never runs out of oil or flour, but her son does get sick. And he does pass away. She said, I've done everything. I've, I've kept the faith. Why has my son passed away? And so God uses Elijah to raise her son from the dead and kind of a weird Pentecostal way, if you would think, and lays out over his son and brings him back to life. 
And Jesus recalls that on this particular day. He recalls the messenger. He recalls and he says, look, this, this happened. But you know what? It also happened to the enemies. The enemies of the people of Israel because they showed their faith. And then he gives another instance. You remember that, that, uh, that Elijah uh, was followed by Elisha, okay? Came after him. It was Elijah's apprentice. And look with me in verse 27. So it gives a second instance of where God didn't reach out to the Jewish people, but reached out to their enemies, reached out to the outsiders. And in verse 27, it says, And in the prophet uh, Elijah's time, there were many in Israel who had leprosy. Now, we don't understand the effect of, of this disease today. Certainly, we understand, you know, a pandemic that's going on and having to stay away from someone for two or three weeks, something like that, being in quarantine. But imagine, if you will, listen to me, imagine you getting sick and having to stay away from people for the rest of your life. Now, this was a contagious disease that affected you and, and it would affect, uh, particularly it would start as a skin disease, but then it would affect all uh, the, the, the different members of your body. Your fingers and your toes would begin to decay and fall off and, and then even your face to the point that you would cover yourself and, and you didn't want anybody else to get sick, particularly your family. So you had to be isolated from your family. And, and, and then after, if that wasn't enough, you know, just the, 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 the fact of humility that anytime someone came close, on accident even, maybe they were traveling. Of course, they didn't have cars or buses or airplanes or things like that. So if anyone's traveling on foot, then anytime that they might come close to you, you had to call out as loud as your voice could carry, unclean, unclean. You didn't want them to get sick and they didn't want to be around you. And so that was the case that took place for many people, including the Jewish people. But then you have this situation that it talks about here in Elijah's time, where you have Naaman the Syrian. Now, if you don't know this story, you can find the first story that I mentioned in 1 Kings chapter 17. You can find this second story right here in 2 Kings chapter 5. Naaman the Syrian, if you're not familiar with this story... Naaman the Syrian wasn't just some guy like the widow. In fact, he was the commander of the army of Aram. So this wasn't a, just someone who humbly, you know, got leprosy and needed to be healed. This was the commander of an enemy army. And to make matters worse, the way that he finds out about Elijah is that he actually had uh, had bought a uh, Israelite slave. Someone had, there was a little girl, a little slave girl that they had that was helping them around the family who had been kidnapped. And so she was brought and was called to be his slave, sold into slavery to him was working on him. So if that wasn't bad enough of him being like the commander of the enemy army, now he's got this captured Israelite girl and then he comes down with leprosy. And this captured Israelite girl looks at him and says, you know, there's a man of God in Israel who can heal you. And so he actually goes to the king of Israel and the king of Israel says, I have no idea what you're talking about, that kind of thing. 
And word gets back to Elijah. Elijah says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go down to the, the local lake, if you will, and I want you to wash yourself seven times. And Naaman, he kind of gets angry. He gets angry. He says, you, you, you're telling me to go down and wash? I thought that you were going to, it literally says this, I thought you were going to wave your hands and just heal me. He says, his, his servants look at him after he's so angry. He's getting ready to go back home. They said, look, you've come all this way. Why don't you just trust? Why don't you just put your faith in this? And so he listens to him, and he's persuaded by them. And he goes down to that local little river, and he dips himself in seven times. And when he comes up the seventh time, he's completely healed. And after this healing, his heart is changed. And he says that there is no God. All of his idolatry, all the idols and, and things that the king that he serves even, he says, even those other gods, I'm not going to worship those other gods anymore. My focus is going to be on the one true God. And Jesus focuses their attention on that day. And it's one of his first sermons that we have recorded. He focuses their attention on that Sabbath day. And they don't like it. In fact, I want you to turn with me to verse 28 of chapter 4 in the book of Luke. It says, when they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was enraged. So they go from admiration and now to antagonism. They are enraged. They are, how dare you speak of our enemies? How dare you speak of the people that we don't like? How dare you speak of the Herman children, if you will. How dare you bring those instances up that God would reach out to those in faith and, and give hope to those who are our enemies. And then in verse 29, we see how outrageous this gets. Can you imagine being the, 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 the preacher of the day at that time? Thank God that, you know, we, we have doors and microphones and things like that, you know, because right here it says that they got up, drove him out of town and brought him to the edge of the hill of that of of their town that their town was built on and intending to hurl Jesus over the cliff but he passed right through the crowd and went on his way can you imagine you would have said, well, Pastor Dan, let's take your microphone off first. So let's make sure that you don't have any of our nice devices on before we hurl you over. How dare you talk about our enemies like that? But here's what I want us to see up here on the screen. Romans chapter 5, verse 10. We see this. We mentioned this in our latest series on the book of Romans, but I want to just recall it to your attention. For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by His life? A lot of times when we think of Christmas, we think of the birth of Christ and we think of, you know, maybe looking forward to His death and we're thankful for that. But do you realize that we, 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 we're the enemies of God with our sin. We were these stories back in 1 Kings 17. We were these stories back in 1 Kings uh, 17 and 2 Kings chapter 5. This was us. We were the enemies, Romans says. And that out of His great love, that He had a hope for us. 
And here's what I want us to see this morning. I just want us just to very, very quickly to go over this passage. I want us to look back at verse 18. And I just want us to see how this is a message of hope for those of us who have been found in Christ. We were former enemies of him in our sin. But now he's called us to be his children. He's called us to be family. But here's what I want us to see as we look at this. The birth of Jesus fulfilled an incredible message. And if you've got your notes this morning. We're just going to fill this in very quickly. I want you to see in verse 18, very first thing, that the birth of Jesus fulfilled a message of hope. A message of hope. That's what we're talking about this morning. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. This word good news, uh, this good news is actually how many times it's translated in our Bibles, gospel. Did you know that? Gospel means good news. It's the Greek word euangelizo. And so I want us to understand that this is after they had heard so many things, bad news. But now there's good news. Man, don't you want some good news? I do. Did you know good news is a lot of times what people don't pay attention to? That's why on the media, so often when you watch the media, when you watch the news, it's bad news because we tend for whatever reason to pay attention. It's psychology. Oh, that's horrible. Let me hear more. And yet, here he's offering good news. Something that's going to uh, bring hope, not just to the Jewish people, but to all people. And, and, you know, even as I think about this, did you realize that Mary and Joseph, it was good news even for them? Do you know how poor Mary and Joseph were? Did you know that Jesus was born into a poor family? He wasn't born into a rich family. You might think, oh, well, certainly we think of that because he was born in a manger, couldn't afford a, you know, a, a decent hotel at that time. But I want us to even understand, did you know that when Jewish babies were born, that, that they were to give an offering, they were supposed to go to the temple and, and have an offering? And that offering, if you look back and you see in the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 12, they were supposed to offer a lamb for the baby that was born. And then it tells us in Leviticus chapter 12, however, if you are too poor to afford a lamb, then you can offer turtle doves. Do you know what Joseph and Mary offered? Turtle doves. It showed. It showed that they were willing to, to be obedient to the Lord, but at the same time, that they were poor. And so the good news of Jesus, that this salvation of Jesus, I want you to hear this, can be obtained by anyone who will put their faith in Christ. And for the people of God, the, many times the, the Hebrew people, the, the, the Israelites, many times that they would turn their attention to all the other things of this world. And that's why we have these two instances right here that I mentioned. is because there were two instances of people that put their faith in God. They put their hope in, this, in, in God and, and the one true God. And here's the thing that I want you to hear this Christmas with all the costly gifts that will be given this Christmas. Cars and watches and toys and everything. I want you to hear that the greatest gift that Jesus could give us, uh, that He gave us, is Himself and ultimately that He did it on the cross. And let me tell you, this was an expensive gift. An expensive gift that didn't cost gold or silver or all the expensive things that we're used to. 
but it costs Jesus his very life. But he's giving it to you and to me who you could be the poorest person here today. You might even be in debt. And he says, but it's absolutely free. The hope that I give you is free. It won't cost you anything. The only thing you have to do is have faith. Have faith. The second thing that we see in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, is that the birth of Jesus fulfilled this message of forgiveness. This message of forgiveness. Look at this in the second part right here. It says, He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives. Now, I almost made this blank freedom. Okay? I almost made this blank freedom because it's talking about being held captive and being released there. But I wanted to make it forgiveness because when you look at this word release in the original Greek, many times throughout the New Testament, although this is translation of the Old Testament, this is the Septuagint, but the way that it is translated many times in the New Testament is forgiveness. Is forgiveness. And it's a, it is certain that it would be used in this way. But it's, imagine this, it's a release or a forgiveness from being imprisoned. What a beautiful picture of thinking about forgiveness. That once I was imprisoned, and what were you imprisoned to? Your sin. Bondage to sin, the bondage of, of a conscience, the bondage of, of hell and damnation, that you had no hope in the world and you are in a jail cell of sin and Jesus comes to give you hope. And what is that hope? That hope is to take you out of this jail cell. And what is the opening of the cell called? It's called forgiveness. He forgives you. And, and the thing that I want us to understand this morning before we go on our way is that sin isn't just it's not just bad sin in your life and my life is a prison and that's one of the reasons that we'll be looking at at David Wilkerson's book it and and that it is finished when Jesus called that out on the cross that it is finished that's what it's all about that Jesus frees you that Jesus forgives you there is a hope of forgiveness the third thing that I want to mention this morning right out of this passage, the third part of verse 18. It says, And recovery of sight to the blind, to set free, there it is again, the oppressed. Now, the next blank that I want you to fill in right here is that the birth of Jesus fulfilled a message of healing. The message of healing. And certainly we can see that with recovery of sight to the blind. And of course, Jesus, when he came, he's healing people that are blind. But it's also talking about spiritual blindness. You know, uh, we've, we've got a, a, a verse out here. If you go out down the hallway, talking about how Jesus is the light of the world. It's one of our themes this year of opening the eyes of darkness and that knowing that Jesus is our light. And so that he, he opens the sight of the blind, both physically and spiritually. And then here's what I want us to see right here. My version says to set free the oppressed. Does your version say that? Might have a different word there, but here's what I want. That word oppressed literally means shattered. It literally means shattered. So think of it this way. To set free the shattered. No doubt this Christmas that there are many lives, maybe that if you're watching online or if you're here in the building with us, 
Many lives are coming in here today and you're looking towards Christmas and you go, you know what, Pastor Dan, I'm looking forward to the hope because you know what, this past year or even in my life, my life has been shattered. I've been shattered. And I want you to hear this morning the powerful message of Jesus that he, that he brings together people who have shattered lives. I was uh, uh, listening to the story of a pastor this week, I was actually reading the story of a pastor this week who, when he was a young man, he was playing football with his friends. You can imagine. I know a lot of families that get together on, on Thanksgiving, and, and there's traditions all over, but I, I've driven by houses, and I see families outside in the front yard or the backyard, and they're playing football with their friends. And so there was this particular uh, pastor who was playing football as a young man with his friends. And so he went out and dove for the football, and someone hit him from the side and shattered his leg. And you can imagine, this was something that they immediately needed to take him to the hospital for. And so he goes on as he was riding, he said that my cleat did not come out of the mud, so my leg snapped in half and broke my tibia and my fibula. And so I was taken off the football field and rushed to the hospital to find that my bone had been completely shattered. I had been hit and hurt so badly, hurt to the point that where it, it had broken me in two. But the doctor came out along who knew how to correct the problem and went with me into the operating room. He opened up my leg and placed inside of it a steel plate with screws. And then he reconnected the bones that had been shattered. Without the doctor intervening that day, my leg would now be crooked and I would be walking with a limp because of the nature of the break. But because someone who understood the problem came in with a plate and ever since that time, that plate has been holding my brokenness together. Do you see it? No matter what your life is, no matter how bad that you have been shattered, Jesus Christ has come upon you and that He holds you together so you don't have to walk in life with a limp, that you can walk through life with healing. And that comes from the message of hope of Jesus. One last thing before we go, and that is this, is that Jesus, the birth of Jesus, fulfilled a message, last thing, of restoration, of restoration. Look right with me in the very beginning of verse 19. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Okay, now what is this talking about? Does this mean we're going to have a really good year? I hope that 2021 is a year of the Lord's favor. I'm hoping for that with our gym. I'm hoping for that with our school. I'm hoping for that with our church, that God gives us a year of his favor. But it's so much more than that. We've got to go back to Old Testament times. Let me tell you, in Old Testament times, what would happen is that every seventh year, every seventh year, they would let the land rest. They would let the land rest. It was called the sabbatical year for the nation. And so then as you get into that, and then you move into now take that every seventh year, you'd let the land rest. You wouldn't let anything grow. But now what you're going to do is now you're moving towards uh, seven years times seven years. So now that would be the 49th year, okay? Following the 49th year was called the year of Jubilee. And this was so much more than just letting the land rest the, the year before on that 49th year. In that 50th year, the year of Jubilee was this incredible year of how 
It was a balancing of the economic system. And so slaves were set free and they were returned to their families. Property had been sold, uh, that had been sold. It now reverted back to the original owners and all debts were canceled. So here's what we're talking about here. If you were dealing with any type of bankruptcy now, in this day and age, you didn't have to declare bankruptcy at least one time in your life in the year of Jubilee, that, that everything went back to the way it was. A year of restoration. And so now when we think of bankruptcy, you know, that's when you're no longer able to pay your debt. They had a year that everything reset so that most people would see that once in their lifetime. Imagine the relief if we had this today. Your car note is now done. It's taken Think about this, your house note, family property that you sold, all your debt goes back to zero. And the reality of that is that it's not just for the good people, it's for everyone, even your enemy, that person who hurt you, anyone that will humble themselves and admit their bankruptcy. And so as we move towards a feeling of hope and the sense of hope that we have with Christmas, I want you to hear this morning that when Jesus came, He came for those who were spiritually bankrupt, even your enemy, even the people who might annoy you, even for those that, that you might distance yourself from, even the person who's hurt you or abused you, anyone who comes to Jesus with faith can have their life restored. My question is, have you had that life restored in you?